Five years ago, I preached a series through First Peter. Today, we're going to begin a series which will take us through to May uh, in Second Peter. And um, the plan is that until uh, Ryan and Kelly get married at the end of April, Ryan's going to be preaching every third week starting next Sunday. So we've uh, collaborated together on the preparation for this series, and we'll work together through the preaching of it. Uh, today, I'm just going to cover verses 1 and 2 and kind of do a, an introduction to this letter. And as has been our habit uh, for the last few years, I guess, um, with a, a smaller book, of course, we couldn't do this through Luke, but uh, we're going to read the entire letter um, at the end of the sermon today, which... Um, I want to stress to you, you know, I think we might think something like that, uh, reading an entire book can be just too much. We can even shy away from it in our own, you know, individual devotional setting. But it's only going to take, I think, about eight and a half minutes to read it aloud. So if you can read it aloud that quickly, you can at least read it, read it that quickly in your own devotional time. So I'd encourage you to do that with uh, the shorter books, um, and even some of the longer ones of the New Testament. be great to, to read Romans in one sitting or, or maybe two. Um, but uh, anyway, just something for your encouragement. We'll begin with reading the, the first two verses and then go to the Lord in prayer. Hear the word of the Lord. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Father, we thank you again. We praise you that we may have this time to study your word together. I pray, Father, that it would be an impactful time that your word would be planted deep in our hearts. And I pray, Father, that uh, throughout the time that we have together in Second Peter, beginning today, we would truly uh, grow in the knowledge and godliness of Christ. I pray, Father, that we would be a church family of courage in our stand for the truth of your word. I pray, Lord, that uh, we would not compromise on it, that we would not be accommodating to false teaching and to heresy. And I pray, Father, at the same time, we would also have compassion for the lost. And we would happily and boldly, patiently and wisely proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, that those who are yet in darkness may be transferred to the light of the kingdom of your dear Son. Father, I pray that according to the riches of your grace, you would, for this hour in preaching and and hearing your word, give to us your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, the the first question to ask and to answer is, uh, who exactly is the Apostle Peter writing to? And Peter mentions in chapter 3, verse 1, that he is writing a second letter. And so I believe that um, the, the people that he is writing to would be the same audience that he was writing to in his first letter. 
And um, if you if you were in the uh, adult Sunday school class this morning, Ryan was taking us. Um, he was showing us a, a map of the Roman Empire and Paul's first and second missionary journeys, and showing us uh, these northern provinces that uh, Paul was going through on his way to to Macedonia in the northwest. Those uh, provinces that he passed through on the way to get to Macedonia are the ones that Peter is writing to. About five provinces that were on the north of the Mediterranean Sea and to the south of the Black Sea where modern-day Turkey is. That's where uh, that's who Peter is writing to now. And in that first letter, he was writing to those people to give them a warning and to prepare them for an assault of persecution that they were just beginning to experience. And he would write to them things like, do not be surprised about the fiery trial that is to come upon you. In this second letter, he is not so much writing about a persecution that is coming from outside, but he is sounding a warning to them to prepare them to defend themselves against an assault of false teaching. So in the first letter, an assault from persecution. Here now, an assault from false teaching. And Peter himself, as he writes this, is on the cusp of execution. So this is his final letter. He'll say that down in um, verse 14, that he knows that very shortly, as the Lord made clear to him, he is about to put off the body. His way of saying that he is about to die. So this letter was written likely in the mid-60s of the first century, and there was a great persecution that the church was experiencing at the hand of the emperor Nero, and it was during that time that likely both the apostles Peter and uh, Paul would be executed. So again, this letter is coming just ahead of that time. Um, Ryan and I are going to be talking a lot about false teaching over the next few months. And if it seems that we do that a lot around here, it's because the Word of God does that a lot. Um, The New Testament in particular, well, the Old Testament too, is it warns us about false prophets, but it's so heavy in the New Testament and concentrated, this focus that we need to be aware of false teaching and to be on guard and to put it in the words of Jude, we must contend for the faith that was delivered once for all. Maybe we wouldn't have to talk about false teaching so much if it all had the same flavor. If it all came from the same angle and was of the same content. Satan is wicked. He is evil. He's not dumb. And he uses every trick up his sleeve to deceive people with the intent of destroying them. And so... Back in Colossians, for example, the false teaching that we talked about there was really odd. It was hard to kind of pinpoint exactly what it was, but we had a blend, a syncretism of false theologies and philosophies. There was that emphasis on the old, the insistence you must practice the law of Moses, and this incorporation of the new, this weird pagan mysticism that the false teachings False teachers were insisting on it and bringing into a blend, a syncretism to supplement, you remember, the work of Jesus as though Jesus is not enough. That was Colossians. Just 
not too long ago. Um, well, the false teaching that Peter addresses is quite different from that. In this false teaching, there is this all-out push for hedonism, uh, for worldly gain and sinful, wicked pleasures, all with a, a denial that Jesus is going to hold us account to account for such things. There's a, a denial of Christ coming to judge. Two things have, uh, well, this is not exhaustive by no means, but things that have surprised me in my ministry, but concerning what Peter writes about here and what we need to be aware of, there's, there's two things that have surprised me a lot in the course of my ministry here. And one is the number, the great number, of false teachers in our area. Uh, sad to say, and I don't mean to to hold any church or denomination with contempt to look down at them or anything like that, but it's the sad fact of the matter. And the Bible has warned us very clearly about the prevalence of false teachers. And even here in this part of the South that historically has been called the Bible Belt, there is a a great proliferation of false teachers. But perhaps even sadder, is that there is an even greater number of pastors who accommodate false teachers. You might not hear false doctrine from their pulpits, but they accommodate to false teachers to, to gather with them and to approve them and, and have fellowship with them and so on. And I've been in a number of meetings with local pastors where I've sounded the warning about heresy. And there have been red flags that have been raised. And you would think, I guess, that I like conflict, but I don't. I, I hate conflict. I wouldn't, I would much rather get along with everyone. But it, it's not about what I like or what I don't like. It's about the truth of God's word. It's about the glory of God. It's about the truth of his son revealed in his inerrant word that has caused me at choice select times to to take a stand. And I've been met uh, in some corners by by close pastor friends with support. And they've had my back uh, completely. But probably more than half of the response that I've got is ignorance about the false doctrine. And I'd go so far as to say the heresy. And not only ignorance, but worse than that, is the indifference that I've been met with. Um, I don't want to make myself out to be anything. I'm not anything special. I'm not the hero of any story. Jesus is. And it's just so sad to see so many led astray. Because when we're talking about false teaching concerning God's Word and the nature of God, we lose God. We're not talking about losing information. We're talking about losing God. With a false portrayal of God, you don't have God a little bit off. You end up with a false God. That's that's the risk here. That's what happens. And so there's, there is that in our area. And um, 
I, I hate that. I hate that. And I, I pray that it changes. Now, we have to acknowledge that in a church like our own that has, you know, we're a Bible church. We get into the Word. We, we get seriously into the Word for hours every weekend. There is a danger where knowledge increases that pride increases and self-righteousness. And where that is the case, we don't have true knowledge. If our pride and this sense of self-righteousness goes up with knowledge, then we don't have the true knowledge that God gives to us through His Word and through His Son. When we're talking about knowledge, we're talking about, again, about God. We're talking about knowing Him. We're talking about being humbled to the floor and through the roof with gratitude. We're talking about knowing Him biblically, deeply, and intimately, personally, not in a way that would build up you know, an inflated sense of self, but would make God to be, show Him to be as glorious as He is. And so our hearts just expand with gratitude and with that our pride shrivels. We need to be not only a, a church that is courageous for the truth, but a church that is compassionate toward the lost. Ryan and I were working hard the other day on a purpose statement for this book, um, which I looked back at First Peter, and I don't think that was my habit back uh, when I five years ago to put together a purpose statement. But here's our purpose statement for this letter. You're going to hear me repeat it again today. You'll hear it repeated a number of times, probably every Sunday until we're finished. Here's the purpose statement for this letter. This is why Peter wrote. Peter stirs us to grow in the knowledge and godliness of Jesus so that we will escape the destructive end of false teaching and enter Christ's kingdom on the day of the Lord. I want to show you, I, I want you to be encouraged today that um, as he, as Peter is aiming for our growth, I want you to be encouraged today that you already, as a Christian, have all you need for this growth. And it is vital that you grow. If we're not growing, it's not like we're static in the Christian life. Not, you know, you don't plateau. You don't flatline in the Christian life. You either are progressing or you're regressing. We are either advancing or to use the old term, we're backsliding. And, you know, you, you just don't have an infinite regress. You have death. If we're not growing, we die. And I believe, I'm not saying that the, the true Christian may lose his salvation. I'm simply saying all believers, by the Holy Spirit, who indwells us, by whom we have been raised to new life, Christians grow. Christians grow. We have this life and it shows up in our growth. So um, I want to encourage you with that today, that we have what we need to grow. And, and Ryan's going to continue the theme over the next couple of verses next Sunday. Let's go back to verse 1. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith, surprising statement here, of equal standing with ours. 
by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter begins by putting himself on a higher level than we are at. And then very quickly showing us that in a different way and a more important way, we are on the same level as him and the other apostles. Uh, First of all, he says that he is a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. What an honor. What a grace had been given to him. That he would wholly belong to Jesus. Peter doesn't have his own agenda. He serves with Christ's agenda. He doesn't have his own ministry. This is Christ's ministry. And because he is an apostle of Jesus Christ, he doesn't have his own words. These are Christ's words. So that what he writes to us is the very word of God. What separates him from us and what gives him, puts him on a different level is the authority that God has given to him in Christ. An apostle is, you could say three things about an apostle. Number one, an apostle had to have seen the risen Lord Jesus. That's the first thing. Of course, Peter had that. He had been with Christ for three years as his disciple. Second, the, the, the apostle has received Jesus' personal commission. He has the personal commission of Jesus that separates him as an apostle. And then third, obviously, naturally, the consequence is that he is vested with Jesus' personal authority. And so those three things um, put him on a different level, a higher level, but it's a level of authority. We don't have the authority of Peter. And nobody in this generation or since the generation of the apostles has the same authority. No one had that personal commission and the authority that they did. And so it's the apostles and their associates who, by the Holy Spirit, penned the the books of the New Testament. So what we receive here is the Word of God. So his self-description shows that he is on a different level of authority. But then, immediately, Peter says something surprising that shows that you and I are, in fact, on the same level. He says, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Not in authority, but in faith, we are on the same level. And it's all by the grace of God. It's not anything that you have done. It's not a choice that you have made. It's not an act of your will or a personal decision you made that obtained for you this faith. This is a really remarkable word, and it's really hard to get out in English to show us that it's 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 to say uh, that it's an act of God. But that's the case. I'll give you a couple of examples. This word's pretty uncommon in the New Testament, only used maybe five times or so. And um, when it's used, it shows us, well, it looks like, well, that's just pure dumb luck. It looks like random chance, the luck of the draw. That's what it looks like, at least on the surface. You see, back in Luke chapter 1, you remember John the Baptist and his father Zechariah, who was a priest? Well, it says in Luke chapter 1 that... Uh, Zachariah, father of John the Baptist, had obtained, had been, in, in fact, chosen by lot 
to serve in the temple and to burn incense in the temple. And that word, it's, it's three words in English, chosen by lot, is Peter's word, obtained. What did he do to, to obtain this? He didn't do anything. He didn't say, I'll do it. It was, it looks like the luck of the draw. Heads or tails, roll the dice. It looks like that. It looks like that. Then in John chapter 20, we have another example of this word. When the soldiers were at the foot of the cross and they were, you know, Jesus was, was stripped naked and hung on the cross. And so they began to, to split up his clothing and they got to the tunic which John says was uh, just a, a seamless garment. It was all one, and so they didn't want to tear it up. And so what they did is they cast lots for it. And that's how that one soldier obtained it. The word that they cast lots was, that's the word obtained. So again, it looks like, you know, uh, he just got the the longest straw or whatever, you know? It looks like a roll of the dice. It was by lot. The book of Proverbs says this, however. The lot is cast into the lap, or you could think the roll of the dice, but it's every decision is from the Lord. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. This thing that we call chance doesn't exist. And so when the the Bible talks about obtaining faith of equal standing with the apostles, it's being it's clear in the original not as much in English, but I want you to be clear that it's not of you. It's not anything you did. It's not a decision you made saying I will take this faith. I mean, it feels like that to us. We do need to make a choice and we need to make a decision. But the emphasis of the New Testament is that even your faith, even trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, is a gift from God. You would not believe on your own. You would not see the glory of Jesus on your own. You wouldn't hear spiritually the gospel on your own. You obtained it by the grace of God. It's all of God. It's not of us. But he has put us on equal standing with the apostles by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what we have by this faith. We have obtained this righteousness. So this is part of what it means that it's on, you know, of equal standing or it's a faith of equal value with the apostles because we have righteousness the very righteousness of Jesus through it. So you are no less justified because you have the righteousness of Christ credited to your account by the grace of God. You are no less justified on your very worst day, spiritually speaking, than Peter on his very best day. You are no less justified when you first believed than the saints in heaven are right now whose spirits have been made perfect. And the implication of this, of being in Christ, united to him, and having his righteousness is that you are just as welcome into the presence of God as the Son is. And you can no more be cast out of heaven than Jesus himself can. And I have a feeling 
that this language and what I'm saying will be, should be, I hope it's very familiar to you, like Brother Mike said this before, because there's nothing more astounding than this to show us how firm and how secure what our standing is by the righteousness of Christ. This is what we have obtained. And it's all by the grace of God. So this is one way that this faith is of equal standing, of equal value and preciousness as that Peter and the other apostles obtained. Another way that it is of equal value in standing is that you have everything you need to stand and not fall. You have everything you need by this faith and in the knowledge of Christ. Everything you need by the righteousness of Jesus to grow all the way to the day of the Lord. You have everything already by the Spirit of God, by the standing you have been given in Christ. You have everything you need to grow and not shrivel to spiritual nothing, wither to nothing by the pleasures of and sins of this world. You have everything you need to fight the good fight of faith and to endure to the end. You have it all. You don't have to... Uh, there's no extra steps that you you have to take. Nothing you have to supplement to the gospel. You know, you have to add on. We were talking so much about this in Colossians. Add on to Jesus by various uh, ecstatic, mystical, spiritual experiences or what have you. It's all in the gospel. So that you just go deeper and deeper into what you already have. Deeper and deeper into the gospel of Jesus Christ. And more and more experience the Spirit of God and His work in you. Peter writes in uh, verse 2, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. This is his prayer for the people of God. He, the, the Lord wants you to grow. And the Lord has given you all that you need to grow. That's that word multiplied. Your experience of the grace of God and the peace of God may abound in your life in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. But you must grow. You must grow or die. But you have all that you need to grow. So it's first, you know, you might want to say on one hand, that's very frightening. Grow or die. Grow or die. But the gospel is you have all that you need in Christ in the knowledge of Jesus to grow, and you will. You will, by the Spirit of God, you will grow. But I want you to be so encouraged by what you have in the Gospel and in Christ, you make it your renewed determination to do just that. Grow. Grow deeper and deeper. Closer and closer to God. More and more conformed to Christ. Peter knew what it was to stumble badly. And so don't misunderstand me. Don't think, okay, I'm only to grow, and that's true, I'm only to grow, and so I will never stumble. That part is not true. It's true you are only to grow, but it's not true that you're not going to stumble. Peter stumbled terribly. On the night when Jesus was arrested, Peter denied knowing Jesus three times. And on that final time, he was calling 
He was basically saying when it says that he swore he did not know him. He was calling down the curses of God on him if he knew Jesus. I mean, you don't... It's like that Peter is on the razor's edge of apostasy there. But Jesus had told him, you're going to fall, but I have prayed that your faith will not fail. And when you return to me, not if, when you return to me, strengthen your brothers. And that's going to be the experience of every true believer who's determined to walk with Christ. Though you stumble badly, you will return. You will come back to Christ. There will not be a final turning away from Jesus in anyone who is a true child of God. It's the promise that God will complete the work in us at the day of Christ that he has already begun. That's the promise of the word of God. So Peter knew what it meant to stumble badly. But God had kept him. His faith faltered, but it didn't fail because God kept him. And so Peter as he is encouraging us to grow spiritually in the knowledge and godliness of Jesus, he is, he is pushing us, he is pushing us hard. And he is promising grace for it. Again, verse 1, or verse 2, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And in the last verse of the letter, he says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So you can see that this whole letter is about growing. That's what it, so when you see him bracket the whole letter, wrap the whole letter with those growing in grace and knowledge, that's what the whole letter is aimed at, that we will grow in the Lord. And again, it's not about this knowledge that we must strive for. We're not going after information. We're going after God Himself. We're not talking about academics. We're not talking about intellectual understanding. We are talking about life. True spiritual life. That's what we're after. That's what we want to uh, experience more and more. Have you really, have you taken that to heart yet? About this knowledge? Have you taken to heart the way that the Bible speaks of knowing God? Jesus said this about it. He said, this is eternal life. That they may know you. This is eternal life. That they may know you. He didn't say time without end. He didn't say this is eternal life. Time without end. Days without end. It's knowing God to no end. That's eternal life. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. In the Old Testament, the prophet Jeremiah said, let, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the, the rich man boast in his riches. But let the one who boasts boast in this, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. What, what do we have to boast of? What is the best thing that we have? Knowing God. That's the, the greatest blessing that you and I have and will ever have 
It's knowing God. Paul, as we talked about in Colossians, he laid down his life for the churches that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's what we're, what we're after. That's what we're reaching for. It's not knowledge that stops at your head. That's not what we're after. That's not why we would ever make a fuss about false doctrine, false teaching. Because we're not talking about head knowledge. We're talking about the knowledge that comes to our minds through the Word of God that penetrates to our hearts down deep and saves us and transforms our lives. That's what we're talking about. That's what we're after. That's why we put up a fuss. And when we get to chapter 2, you're going to see that's why Peter goes berserk. He sounds like a a fire-spitting fundamentalist. You should. We'll read it in a moment. Because we're not talking about just head knowledge. We're talking about a matter of life and death. It's a matter of life and death for the church, and it's a matter of life and death for you and me, this knowledge. And so we must contend for it with courage. Let me sum up the book um, in a little more detail, the chapters, and then we'll read the letter together. In chapter 1, Peter is going to urge us to grow in light of the grace we've been given and show us again in verses 3 and 4, we have all we need to grow. And to grow all the way until the coming of Jesus. He's going to urge us to the Scriptures and to the prophets and to look to them to remind ourselves that Christ is coming in power and glory. We have already seen Him come in power and glory. We have seen His glory in the cross and we have seen His glory when He was transfigured, Peter says, on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophets confirmed in that moment And you must go to those prophets and you must remember what has already happened. You must hold fast to the truth that Jesus is coming because false prophets are everywhere. False teachers are running rampant. And Peter exposes them for their wickedness and their treachery to deceive and to lead astray and ultimately to bring to destruction those who walk with them. They are all out for pleasure. And they deny the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and His judgment. But when Jesus does come, He will rain judgment on their heads. And He will, at the same time, save all who believe in Him. And then finally in chapter 3, Peter is going to urge us to godly, patient waiting for the return of Jesus Christ. I don't think there's anything very complex in this letter, nothing very hard to understand, but... Uh, Truth be told, some of it may be hard to swallow as we go through this letter. It'll be hard to swallow if we think that being a Christian is about being nice. Kindness is Christian. Compassion is Christian. Patience is Christian. Not quarreling is Christian. But playing nice when it's a matter of life and death is not Christian. It's Christian to be bold. 
to take a stand and to take courage and to compassionately show to others the error of their way and the destructive end when they follow false teachers. Let's read this letter together and that will conclude our time. Second Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Let's hear the word of the Lord. I hope you have your Bible open. Uh, if you don't, if you don't have your Bible, grab the one in the pew in front of you um, and open up to Second Peter. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. 
And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. and Their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if He did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when He brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For for them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh, those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person to that, he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become for them, has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago. And the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, 
The heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. It's your truth. It's the one truth for all people. And I pray that we would contend for it and we would be bold in it. And in your truth, in the knowledge of it, I pray that this church would grow and grow and grow. Lord, until Jesus comes, however long it may be, however many generations are yet to take their place in the church family at Alt's Chapel, I pray that this church would never stop growing. I thank you for your grace and for the promise that your people will grow. Lord, we want it. We want to know you more. We want to walk with you ever more closely. And I pray, Father, that as we grow in the knowledge of the truth, as we grow in courage, I pray that we would also abound in compassion for those who are yet in darkness. May we freely and boldly, powerfully, always lovingly proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. We were as the lost are, and it's only by grace that we have been found. It's only by grace that though we were blind, now we see. And so I pray that we would, as we have been given such great grace, extend it, Pour it out 
to others around us, to all of this community. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.